Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. One of the things that occurs to me is that the recurring theme, I think Ben probably articulated this most, is one of the dimension and speed at which information travels. And we wanted to introduce into this uh, day of thought about the impact of the Internet somebody who's really taken it on a degree in the practical work that he does in Internet-based information, which is to use imagery. Um, I first saw David McCandless, who's going to speak to you now, and then we'll have a little bit of time for questions at TED. And I was, to use that American phrase, very blown away by the way he described the work that he does. And I think um, if you're anything like me, it will have a fairly profound effect on the way you view the Internet and the exchange of information. So having bigged him up, uh, I'd really like to welcome somebody who is now in such demand from organizations as varied as the Guardian, and uh, I think UNESCO. Uh, He describes himself as a data journalist. He works for Wired, he works for Desite, but he's really an information designer. And uh, without further ado, um, David McCandless. Thank you. I'm blushing. That was lovely. Um, So... Yeah, I think uh, a sensation we might all be familiar with is uh, information overload. And uh, my feeling is that uh, there may be an easy solution, uh, which is to visualize information. Visualize it so that we can see patterns and connections that matter. And then taking, I'd go one step further and take that visualized information and design it. Apply design principles to it so that it makes more sense or allows us to focus on what really matters, or even so it tells us a story. I think when you start doing that, interesting or cool or even quite magical things can happen. So I want to show you, and I hope you can see the screens, because I'm going to show you a load of images. Um, Let me just start with this piece, which you may have seen online. This is the billion-dollar-ogram. This image arose out of uh, frustration I had with the reporting of billion-dollar amounts in the media, in that they're reported as self-evident facts. And in fact, they're absolutely mind-boggling amounts of money, and you really can't imagine the scale of these things unless you arrange them visually. So I scraped a load of figures from New York Times, The Guardian, and so on, and then arranged them in this tableau. Uh, the, the boxes here are uh, they're scaled according to the amounts, and the colors here represent the motivation behind the money. So your sort of purple color there is fighting, pink is uh, spending, green is earning. And so immediately you can see, you can start to have a different kind of relationship to these abstract numbers. You can literally see them. But more, you can start to see connections and relationships between numbers that would otherwise be scattered across multiple news reports. Um, what I love doing is, it's a bit like, it looks like Lego and it's a bit like Lego, so you can start to play with it. Visualizing data, curating data, and then using it as a, a material to build things, to play with, to just get new perspectives, new ways of looking at stuff. Let me show you some other stuff. This, I did a similar thing for the um, UK budget. 
you can see I wanted to highlight the budget deficit, which you've just seen, versus the income tax. But to me, again, this is still in a, a quite an abstract realm of billions. So I took these figures and worked on the units to make them easier to understand. So here are the same figures, but in a different, on a different scale. This is how much you spend as an average taxpayer on these amounts. So if these are daily amounts coming out of your salary. And I think it's easier to relate. You perhaps don't know what you spend every month, what you spend every year, but you definitely know how much you spend a day. So you can see Scotland costs us £2.93 a day, each of us, which you might consider to be good value or not. <laughs> um, the NHS is £9, which you may feel is good. Museums, 3p. So, again, just taking the data and trying to create a relationship or trying to create a connection between this, the vast scads of information we have and our everyday lives. Let me show you something else. Some of you might have seen this. So if you know what this is, don't say. I'm going to do a little quiz here. Can you guess what this data set might be? What peaks twice a year? Uh, once in Easter and then again two weeks before Christmas. Has little mini peaks every Monday and then flattens out in the summer. Chocolate. Chocolate. You might want to get some chocolate in, yeah. Any other guesses? Cars. Cars? Cards. Somebody might buy you a card. Sick, you will definitely feel sick. Let's see. We scraped 10,000 Facebook status updates for the phrase, we broke up because, and this was the pattern that was revealed. So you have a sort of clean out around spring. <laughs> uh, an odd peak around April Fool's Day. The terrible joke. Flatten out in the summer because you want to be free and single in the summer, right? And then, uh, you know, the lowest day of the year, of course, is Christmas Day. And who would do that? So, in this situation, you know, we're generating huge amounts of information. Obviously, Facebook is generating huge amounts of information. And if you, those, there's a vast sea of it out there. And if you ask the right kind of question or you come at it with the right approach, it can reveal something interesting about our lives. In fact, if you hear a lot, you might have heard the phrase, data is the new oil. It's like a, some kind of medium that we can now mine and use and resource and shape. So let me show you another landscape. Because I work as a journalist, so what excites me is, is finding hidden patterns or unexpected relationships, because that feels like a story to me. This is a, a timeline of the world's greatest fears. Let me label it for you. I should really put a label on. OK, so we've got time along the bottom. And the height here is the intensity of certain keywords as they've been, or certain fears as they've been reported in the media. Your pinky here, swine flu. Yellow, bird flu. Uh, the sort of orangey one, <laughs> SARS. Do you remember that one? Uh, far left grey is the millennium bug. These little green pokes in the foreground, asteroid collisions. <laughs> and then uh, your, your blue things at the bottom, those little peaks, killer wasps. <laughs> So these are the fears. These, it always feels like there's another disease or another kind of terror in the media. Is there any pattern to it that inspired this? Is that curious? And you see there's a rise and fall. But there's also a hidden pattern here which I didn't expect to see and that I could only see if I visualized it. Let me just highlight it for you. Here we go. So this is the pattern for violent video games. As you can see, there's a kind of strange regular shape to the pattern. Twin peaks every year. And if you zoom into the data... You can see these peaks occur in the same month every year. November, April, November, April. Well, why? Right, so publishing cycle, yeah. Um, I think November is definitely a big month for video games. 
uh, Christmas and you know, an upsurge in the concern about the content. April is kind of a month, but there's something else that went on in April, goes on in April. There's another association in April that's pushed this fear of violent video games into the agenda. Anybody? Easter. Sorry? Easter. Easter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Crime no? Statistics. Crime statistics. Yeah. Well, it's a crime. Say again? Half term. No, well, it's, it's more tragic than that, unfortunately. April 1999, Columbine shooting. A tragedy that was intimately linked with violent video games. And since then, there's been court cases, retrospectives, even copycat shootings. And these two issues, the fear of violent video games and Columbine, have become interlinked. I created this map with a, a tool called Google Insights. And if you look at the correlations between Columbine shooting and violent video games, you see how closely they correlate. Those peaks are uh, the anniversaries, the various anniversaries of Columbine, I think 5th, 8th, and 10th. So you see how we remember that now these, these two ideas are now interlinked. We kind of, this is how the group mind remembers it. It echoes down the years, and it's diminishing a little bit, but it's still there. And there's also another pattern here, which I didn't expect to see. You see there's a gap on the left of the diagram that occurs pretty much to all the fears, disappears. And if you can see where that gap starts... Exactly, 9-11, when we had something very real to be scared about. So, hidden patterns, lurking information, if you take the right approach or you have the right question, a story might emerge or a pattern might emerge. Um, so, data is a new oil. Could it be the new oil paint? I love painting with data. I like taking data that is ostensibly quite boring and making images out of it or using it as a, as a, as a material. This is Google's Zeitgeist, which you may have seen in the news this week. The, Google's announcement of the top search terms of the year. I'm going to zoom in so you can see a bit more detail. Um, now, they released this as a table. They just this year started doing a visualization, which I don't particularly rate, but um, it's a fascinating <laughs> insight into converting just simple, relatively uninteresting data into a landscape that you can explore with your eyes and make your own connections. And also, interesting kind of timeline or relic, historical relic. This is the, these are the top search terms in 2006. Uh, Big Brother in, over here in the, and Argos, strangely. As, um, uh, the Page Jaune was still a, a, a fetid uh, information source in France. And Juventus was ruling the Italian leagues. And then we can go back to 2008. eBay rising, the BBC. Uh, YouTube beginning to appear in France. And uh, Roma finally getting there. And then 2009, and you can see Facebook is now beginning to emerge strongly. BBC clinging on, and Roma still clinging on as well. So just an interesting way of just making something that's quite dry into something that's just a bit more fun and a bit more good to look at. And you see a lot of uh, conceptual variety here across Europe. Obviously, there are language differences. But if you compare it with the United Search Terms of America, you see a lot less uh, variation. Here we've got, I think, Yahoo, Lyrics and YouTube pretty much dominating the whole of American internet culture. So just painting with information, just aliving it a little bit. I also love, again, as a journalist, using data to correct perspective or perception. Here's an easy question. Who has the biggest miniature budget in the world? Yeah. Massive. 607 billion in 2008. So big, in fact, that it can contain all those other budgets inside itself. Um, there's Africa's total debt for context and our budget deficit. So a massive budget every year, and that might chime with your idea of America as being uh, uh, you know, a militarized industrial complex. It's out to uh, colonize the world with its aggressive industrial 
military aims. But is it true that America has the world's biggest defense budget? Because America is an incredibly rich country. It's fantastically wealthy. In fact, it's so wealthy it can contain the other top four industrialized nations' economies inside itself. These are the totaled uh, GDPs of the states. So its budget is bound to be enormously disproportionately larger. So to be fair, really, you need to take defense budget as a proportion of earnings, and that would be a more honest, connect those two bits of data together and more for a more honest look. So if you do that, the picture changes. This is the picture. So suddenly you've got a different landscape, and suddenly other countries swing into view that you wouldn't have considered, perhaps, or maybe you would. I mean, perhaps Saudi Arabia, and I never understand why Saudi Arabia buys so many weapons, but there it is. And USA drops to 8th, the UK there in the 29th. So it's, it, it's true that America has the largest budget, but it's only partially true. The, the fuller picture is that it's actually one of the top ones. And you can do the same with soldiers as well. Look, so this is an easy question again. Who has the biggest army? China. China. Massive. Again, chiming with your perception, China sort of militarized country, ready to pounce on its neighbors. But again, of course, China has a massive population. So if you take it as a proportion of population, you see actually more dramatic. China plunges to 124th in the world. It actually has a tiny army. And these other countries, again, spring up. And some of them are understandable, and some of them might spark curiosity in you as to why. So... In a connected world, unconnected figures, absolute figures, without any relationship to any other numbers, so without in con not in context of the data, are only partially true. You need to con connect these figures together. So information is beautiful. I want to just quickly talk about myself. <laughs> I wonder if I can make my life beautiful. This is my uh, visual CV. Um, I don't really like the way I've done it, but it's kind of it works. Uh, you see, I've got the background in all these sort of. Uh, fields as a programmer, a journalist for magazines, I've worked online, I've worked in advertising, and I've only been designing for the last few years. And I've discovered an odd thing when I started designing. I've never trained at art school, I've never, I've never been to um, design classes, I just kind of learn on the job. And it was odd, because I started designing and I found that I already kind of knew how to do it. Not in the sense of like I was brilliant at it, but that I understood the rules of typography and space and colour, and there was some sense that I'd absorbed them from all this media that I've been involved with over the years. And I don't really feel like I'm unique. I feel that that might be happening to a lot of us. There seems to be a growing design literacy. We're, we're all visualizers now. We all expect our information to be visual in some way. The, the web is, is a merging of design and information together. And in fact, the reliability of the information, our ability to trust it, depends quite a lot on how well it's designed, if you think about a shoddy website versus a really well-designed website. And your eyes are actually very exquisitely tuned and sensitive to variations in color and, and pattern and uh, space. And so if you twin that, you're, you know, you're searching for patterns, I'm showing you something, you're already searching for patterns. If you twin that language of the eye, the space, color, with the language of the mind, which is about concepts and numbers and uh, ideas, you start to be able to speak two languages simultaneously, each enhancing the other. So you've got a, almost like a more powerful kind of language in which to explore ideas. Let me show you what I mean. This is uh, a map of who's suing who in the telecoms trade. <laughs> A total mess, you know, everyone is just attacking everyone else. Obviously, it's very detailed. I'm going to skim off a layer for you here, so just take these little bubbles out. So there are two things happening here. On one level, I've got the story, and these, in these bubbles are the reasons why these various companies are, are, are suing each other. And also, you can see, that, that obviously, the companies themselves. But, so that's, that's your kind of mind level. But then you can skim it out even further, and you can see the pattern. You can see, visually, your eye can start to perceive, well... Is there any relationship? Sorry, I didn't explain. The, the, the squares here are the size to the re revenue of each company. And red means dropping revenue, and 
black means increasing revenue of various companies. So now, is there a relationship between dropping revenue and litigiousness? Is there a relationship between size of company and litigiousness? So your eye can actually perceive that very quickly. It's, you're speaking to the eye when you're designing this stuff. If you're using color and shape and perspective, then that's a way of talking directly to your eyes. Let me show you some other stuff that happens when you visualize information. Um, you can do really great mashups. Take one data set, overlay another, and see what happens. This is uh, areas of high BNP membership in the UK. And these are areas of large non-white populations. I wondered, I was curious, you know, there was an upsurge last year in interest in the BNP. Is there any correlation? What, what might be revealed? So we overlay them, just simple color techniques. So what colors, it's like staining almost with dye. And we can see uh, some, maybe not so many surprises, in North, North Yorkshire there, um, a seat of quite a lot of racial tension. But also some odd ones, Swindon, Eastbourne, uh, Bristol, Places perhaps you wouldn't associate with um, potential tension. So what's going on there? We might want to send a journalist there. You might want to look at that place. But again, a pattern you wouldn't necessarily be able to see in a spreadsheet. You almost have to visualize it to see it. Um, overviews. So uh, take a big, wide view of something. This isn't my data. This is from a great site called Land Art Generator. But this is the surface area required to power the world with solar power. This is what we need to do to sustain our society. And you compare that to wind power, and you can see the difference instantly. You get a, a really nice, sweet overview that's just visually presented to you. Oh, yes, this is another option that uh, I think isn't discussed enough. <laughs> uh, it would actually, we'd have to coat the world in skyscrapers 221 stories high to power the world with human batteries. <coughs> it's an option. <laughs> uh, so you can take a wide view or you can zoom in. So zoom in to a really small... Uh, statistic that perhaps gives you another perspective or another different sense of the atmosphere of a particular thing. This data is about six months old, so it may have changed, but it gives you a different perspective on the buzz. You can do a similar thing, Let's, or you can take just one really tiny statistic and give it a bit of visual treatment to show. This is, uh, you may have seen, uh, Clay Shirky talks about cognitive surplus. Um, 200 billion hours spent a year watching TV by US adults. And then you can compare that with the 100 million hours that was required to create Wikipedia. Perhaps even a smaller dot would be the, the three hours it took them to make WikiLeaks. I'm sure it just busted off. But again, just a very small, simple visualization just kind of gives you that sense of scale. Or you can just try and visualize everything, which is what I tried to do with this. Uh, being a bit of a semi-health nut, I was curious about supplements, the evidence for dietary supplements. Like... Uh, you know, should you take vitamin C, vitamin D, vitamin E? You know, it's just conflicting information all the time. So I set out to try and answer the question of what's worth taking. And so I, I pulled 3,000 studies off PubMed and attempted to visualize the answer. So this here is this kind of visualization is called a balloon race. So the higher up the image, the more evidence there is for a particular substance. And the size of the bubble here corresponds to its popularity. So you can see where there's a relationship between something that everyone knows about and whether it's and its efficacy. So I can zoom in for you. So by grading the, the studies, and I only use human uh, random controlled trials uh, uh, from the Cochrane Institute. So you can do a worth it line. So above the worth it line, these substances are worth exploring, for this, for the, uh, only, but only for the, the conditions listed in the bubble. And then you have below the worth it line, this is stuff that there isn't really that much evidence for at all. What's interesting about this, and frustrating for me, is I had a book, I did a book of 250 infographics. This is one of them. This took me a month. 
a month of information gathering, filtering, and visualization to get it done. So after a month, I'd only filled two pages of my book. Very, very annoying. Uh, but, but what it points to is um, vi visualizing is almost like um, it, there's a huge amount of information here. So it's almost like a form of knowledge compression, a way of squeezing a huge amount of information into a small space. Um, that's easy to digest. It's almost relaxing to see something like this. If you, if you have, see a lovely visualization, it's like, it's not like, oh, I've got 60 pages to read. It's like, okay, I'll just sit down and it sort of flows in. There's something, an effortlessness to it because you're using your eyes so much. So I love, the, what really excites me about this field is applying this, not necessarily to data and statistics and kind of hard information, but also to concepts and ideas and the ways in which we frame our world. This is my attempt to try and understand the political spectrum left versus right, so how it percolates down from uh, government into society and culture into individuals and then into their voting habits and then back around in a cycle. I'll zoom in a little bit so you can see. Um, and what excited me about this, basically, as I was doing it, I'm a bit of a journalist, obviously, uh, and I really wanted the left-hand side to be better than the right-hand side. <laughs> so as I was writing and researching it, my biases were creeping in. And I could, I could sense that, and I thought, well, no, I couldn't. In order to do a proper image, a really balanced and, and fair image, I had to honor the perspectives on the right. And at the same time, somewhat uncomfortably recognize how many of those qualities are actually in me. Um, and that's the exciting thing for me, is when you present ideas, especially politically or highly charged ideas in a visual form, there is, it's less threatening. It's almost, you're just looking at them, right? You're just seeing them. It's not like somebody's telling you or trying to convince you. There's a way you can actually hold contradictory views simultaneously, that almost enjoyably. There's, there's something unthreatening about visualizing information, especially when you apply it to this world. Let me just zoom in for a little bit. So I think there's a lot of potential, maybe politically in, edu in an education, for this approach to holding multiple perspectives and allowing different ideas to exist simultaneously without bias or too much bias. I'm um, still quite biased this image, I must say. Um, so I'm just going to round off now just by saying, um, or feeling, my feeling is uh, design seems to be about solving problems and providing elegant solutions. And information design is about um, providing elegant information, elegant solutions to information problems. And it feels like we have a lot of information problems in our society, from saturation to... Um, you know, breakdowns in trust and reliability. So visualization might be in a, a way of countering some of that, those momentums and solving some of those problems. And often it's just a really simple way of just getting into a subject and getting an instant answer or a really quick oversight, insight into something. Let me show you. Do you remember the plains, the uh, Icelandic volcano? Um, you know, was that a blessing for the planet or was it just a terrible disaster for the aviation industry? If you look at the data, you see the volcano was emitting 150,000 tons a day. The European aviation industry emits 350,000 tons on average a day. They grounded 60% of the flights, so we saved 2,006 tons. So we had our first carbon neutral volcano. <laughs> <laughs> and that is beautiful. So thank you. Just before we break for tea, I wanted to ask David a question. I wanted to call on Peter York, if he's here, to give his thoughts, as he's such a nut for visual things. And if anyone else wants to ask a question. My question is this. When you showed some data with music, 
you got a round of applause. <laughs> yeah. So what's the multi-dimensional element? It's not just visualizing data, is it? There's, it's basically data as television, she says, in Channel 4. Yes. Or is it? I think story, I think could be a new form of storytelling, really, using data and information as a landscape, as a world in which you can navigate. And that, that's probably one of my first experiments, and I'm doing some other animations, where you go on a road trip through this information, and you, know, you go off in little side arms, and you learn things along the way. But it feels like it, it is a, a space that you can perhaps navigate. And there are a lot of stories, and it's a lot of richness and, and topicality and juice to it, it feels. One other quick question is, do you think in 10 years' time people will be as disparaging as Nico was about PowerPoint? about the visualizations about that you've set in other words is it going to degrade its fabulousness yeah it's always a possibility we get tired of seeing this stuff i think yeah, maybe but i think uh powerpoint offends the eye because it just doesn't follow any particular principles you know a lot of the defaults and the way people use it but color and space and you know nice palettes these these are always going to be kind of enjoyable to look at i'm not sure we can get bored of beauty thank you now peter york you're here I am here. Can you just, just, give, just speak for the group and say what you thought about that, please? Well, I don't think I am speaking for the group. I, what I found beautiful, and very beautiful indeed it was, were all the things to do with money. I liked those best. And I liked the, I liked the blocks, the initial set of blocks to yeah. do with money, and the, you know, the comparative spends, and I wanted to go back to them, and I wanted to have them all to have and to hold so that I could become a dinner party bore on the basis <laughs> of those and yeah. sometimes take out a little laminated thing or, or have it on my or iPad. Inside your jacket. <laughs> yes, or have it, have it on my... Um, I want a nap. That's it. Yeah. Yes, let's be modern. Yeah. I wanted a nap. The other things I didn't like quite so much, um, uh, and the, um, I didn't understand the thing about... A, a, about left and right. I'd have to look at that much r yeah. rather more closely. Yeah, quite and I'm detailed. not sure you can do that that way. But it's a go you know, it's, I'd give it a go. But the things to do with money were ravishing. Thank you. <laughs> uh, apps? Apps, little laminated iterations? Oh, yeah, I'm working on a few apps, yeah. And there is going to be an iPad version of my book which does a bit more. It's more um, kind of interactive, I guess. Yeah, apps, uh, moving image, dynamic play. I mean, that, that's the real soul of it. I mean, when you face with so much data, and it's quite serious data, and it seems quite boring as well in some ways, to play with it is a good response. So allowing people to use it as a material and, and shape and make their own insights and overlay stuff themselves, that kind of feels the next move. Is it also true that you're embracing and making a virtue of some of the complexity? So, for example, PowerPoint always sold itself on the simplicity. The mm. idea was you could sort of be half asleep in the middle of the afternoon, you'd be an executive and you'd get it. Yeah. Whereas I think there's new evidence that the brands that top the awareness league are brands like Argos and Ikea where you have to work quite hard to figure them out as yeah. systems and then you become incredibly loyal. Are you? Right. Is there something in that that people do have to read and look quite closely as yeah. well as find your images beautiful? Yeah, I suppose there might be. I always try and put two levels of detail in. So there's like a, a top level, an overview, where you just can enjoy the patterns and you can get the gist. And then there's more detail as you zoom in, if you like. And that seems to work quite nicely. Um, I think 
there's a relief as well to be able to understand something without too much effort and processing. And I think that people, it seems to warm to my work because it's complex, but it's actually, you look but at immediate. it. immediate. Yeah, immediate. And then there's a relief, like, oh, okay. Okay, some comments. What, what, do, what, uh, who's, Emma, I know who you are, but remind us, say who you are. Um, I'm an independent angel investor. I work in technology, and I, I look at technology of the, in the so what, even though that's my background. I found your Twitter um, diagram particularly interesting because yeah. uh, you know I think there's a lot of people from the media here, and to look at that and see that there's of the hundred, there's five big mouths, um, <laughs> a lot of them being journalists, and I get it because that's your um, that's your field um, yeah. is to is to is to you know, get attention. Um, but I think it's really interesting from business point of views. There's a lot of comments about the, you know, so what of Twitter. Um, yeah. and, and actually, I think we need to come up with mechanisms where we can measure the, yeah, we can tweet and we can, you know, if we're selling products, but really, if we put a billboard out, would have we got the same response? Yeah. Uh, and it's comparative, and I think that's a, you know, that's a great slide to, or um, piece of information to, for everyone to take home. Thank you. Hi, my name's Helen Beckett. I'm a PR consultant. Um, I really love what you do. I'm kind of fascinated about how you can take a month to do two pages, but at the same time, digital innovations really encourages people to have an attention deficit and that kind of hunger for, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm tweeting and I'm in a conference and I'm trying to listen to you and I'm wondering what he's doing over there. How do you reconcile these things? Yeah, well, that, that felt like a real personal project for me and it, it's, it, the inspiration was not like curiosity or joy. It was frustration and anger with the... Uh, this reporting and I wanted to understand and that actually was great fuel for me until I, it was like a problem I had to solve so it, it, it focused me deeply on that. I mean that has taken the longest, I mean most, I can do stuff quicker, a little bit quicker like two days a day or something um, but I think it's you, know, you want to pour a lot of love and attention and complexity into these things because then they're just more valuable, right? They become living objects and there's an interactive version of that which spawns itself from a Google Doc and it's a living piece of data now and I can update it with just editing a Google Doc and you can see the Google Doc and so it's become a kind of an alive, the data set is now alive and it can be it can live online for ages now so that's quite pleasing. I'm going to come to Simon War because you've just left Jaguar Land Rover and they make a virtue of beautiful things and technology and explaining it and I wondered whether you had a view now you're out in the big wide world. They, they do, you're right, and, and I was interested about the, the point about design being an elegant solution to problems because I think that, that certainly would tally with what a lot of car designers will tell you they're seeking to do in, in finding some kind of solution to a set of physical problems ultimately. But um, I, I'm curious about the, the, how the challenge you found in the political uh, display actually flows through to some of the others. Are you deliberately, as a journalist, seeking to find a story and present a story? I mean, some of those early ones did seem to be carrying a very strong message. You were making a point. Mm. It, is that, does that flow through all of them, or is that more just coincidental? Um, so often I have a story in mind. Uh, uh, my book was all concepted out before I started doing any design, so I had the stories and the ideas. And often I start on something, a bit like the military budgets one, start on I have this perception, I want to visualise it, and then it takes me on a journey of, through my own preconceptions, and I end up with a story that I wasn't expecting, that sometimes happens. Or sometimes I'm just out to, I've found something, like a journalist, and I'm trying to convey the story to you. And then, like mountains, I visualise something, so I'm curious about it, and there's, I, there's a story in it. So, I have a variety of starts, um, 
I'm definitely a journalist. I would say I'm more a journalist than a designer. So I think that, has, that does affect the work quite a lot. So it's a, it's a form of storytelling, in other words? I think so, yeah. And concept. And concept. I mean, the web is a big influence. Just on a web, you just have a great idea, and if you put a lot of love in it, it will go virally. So there's that. I'm really into that as well. I love just doing things because they're cool ideas. Uh, and not necessarily have a great story, and not particularly topical as well. Uh, will Brown and Freud's. Hey, Will. Hey, David, how are you doing? Long time, Lucy. Yes. Um, We're very Californian at this point. <laughs> Hi, how are you doing? Sorry. Um, I think it's really interesting what you said about telling stories, and, that, and I think that what shines through for me is kind of your journalistic background. I'm not sure sort of open sourcing uh, your kind of models or, or ideas would particularly work, because I'm not sure people would have the kind of rigour to, to come up with something interesting. But my question is really about media and, and your experience at places like The Guardian. I know that that Condonas and Wired and, and Ben's guys do data visualisation very cleverly, but do you see kind of in the modern newsroom people creating data visualisation as, as part of the news story? And how much investment have you seen in that? Yeah, well, I think The Guardian are trailblazers in that to a certain extent. They have such beautiful, and they use newsprint really well. I think there's something about the big format that really works for visualisation. Um, I think top, topical news arena is one area for visualization and I think it's a little tight and often you need to, you don't have enough time necessarily to do a great visualization and I think some of the, the more topical news related visualizations I've seen have been a bit kind of uh, especially around WikiLeaks for example uh, lately um, so I think it's just I get more excited when it goes out of that domain really and out of those realms um, and the New York Times I think are the the, perhaps the leaders, and they have a dedicated team that are absolutely centred on doing this all the time. But even their stuff is quite dry sometimes. Actually, I don't. It's not. Oh, yeah. It's not actually a, a tiny point. It's more of a really nerdy question. Cool. Um, are you doing this programmatically, like with processing, or are you hand drawing them? I'm hand drawing them. Yeah. Dude, They're you can do that on a computer. You know that, right? Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> uh, to, yeah, I need to find somebody to help me. On that note. Uh, the pen and ink note on the Network Nation. Very good thanks to David McCandless. Thank you, thank you. Here's tea. Time.